welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Elizabeth Cantalamessa, a PhD student at the University of Miami. We'll be talking about Elizabeth's background in philosophy, her time in Wyoming, her stint as an adjunct professor before commencing her doctoral studies, and of course, her doctoral research on the philosophy of humour. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Elizabeth, you can email her at eac164 at miami.edu. Elizabeth Cantalamessa, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So you wrote to us saying that you didn't so much choose philosophy as it chose you, which is a classic philosophical answer. But I'm wondering what you mean by that. Growing up, I was not exposed to philosophy. I didn't know what philosophy was. I ended up taking a elective at my local community college, a philosophy elective, in the first few weeks of class, my instructor did a lecture on Nietzsche's genealogy of morality, where he discussed alternative explanation for moral concepts like good and evil. And I had, well, at that time I was maybe 20, 22. Um, growing up, I had started to develop my own folk theory of moral psychology, trying to explain why people believed in different religions, how there, how it could be the case that there are different religions that people believe. I came up with it as a coping mechanism, <laughs> which, uh, you know, crude folk theory. But when I was exposed to um, the Nietzsche lecture, I realized that other people thought about that kind of stuff. I just didn't even know that you know, it was a thing other people thought about, let alone a thing other people studied or wrote books about and that other people consumed. And so it was like I had already been doing philosophy before I knew that that's what I was doing. And so it just came easily for me in some ways. Of course, not you know everything's easy, but um, it was the first time that I felt excited by an academic pursuit, an intellectual activity, a pursuit, and that it seemed to come in a way naturally to me, whereas other things, you know, I just always struggled with. And so, yeah, I felt like I, I had been chosen <laughs> to pursue this weird uh, profession. <laughs> Plus, I'm a clown, so that helps because the philosopher is kind of like a social <laughs> fool or clown. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. How did you then um, follow philosophy thereafter? I mean, you you hadn't signed up to community college wanting to study philosophy specifically. Right. Yeah. Like I said, because philosophy, because I finally felt inspired and ignited by academic pursuits. Before that, I really struggled. I was basically just trying to do it to satisfy my parents' expectation that someone went to college and and graduated. But I never found it something that resonated with me. And so once I found philosophy, I took both electives they offered and they didn't offer you know, a bachelor's degree there and ended up my partner at the time and I did research, I, I suppose, to figure out the cheapest schools. And turns out that the University of Wyoming in Laramie, Wyoming, which Wyoming is the least populated state in the U.S., in the US has the cheapest in-state tuition for any state college, university, in fact. You know, it's a university. It's the only university there. And so they also had a philosophy department and they offered a philosophy bachelor's. And so we decided to transfer there and I was going to pursue a philosophy bachelor degree. 
And I didn't have any further plans about grad school or anything like that. At that time, my my goal was just get the degree, just get the bachelor's so that I could say I did that again, the first in my family. So it's very important symbolically, I think. And I was fortunate that the department at the University of Wyoming was incredibly supportive in encouraging me to pursue a master's actually there at the University of Wyoming. So I was wise enough to listen to them and join. I did take, I think, even a semester off and worked full time while I was trying to pursue the master's in the beginning. For a while, I was working while doing my academic pursuits, um, which was a lot. Yeah, I can imagine there was a lot, but I, I want to go back to. So I, I think you must be the first person we've spoken to, the first person I've spoken to that's like associated with Wyoming in any way whatsoever. <laughs> Possibly also just because it is like the most like remote place in the U.S. It feels like there's like uh, I looked up this fact ahead of the podcast, which is apparently there's like fewer than six people per square mile, which is crazy. Yeah. So I mean, this is uh, I don't know if there's anything unique about this, but was there anything unique about doing philosophy in in Wyoming? Well. <laughs> The department was small and very supportive, which was just like wonderful. It was exactly what I needed in many ways, because again, I was so you know insecure. (laughs) Um, So just having that uh, support and they were all, they would hang out in the department. So there would just be people hanging out and talking philosophy. And yeah, I mean, it's two hours from Denver. So you're still close enough to the big city to get that sort of cultural, uh, you know, pop culture dose when you need it, concerts and the like. But I really enjoyed the the solitude, the remoteness, the coldness too. It's got like eight months basically of winter, a very short, warm summer period. Uh, and it's very quiet and contemplative when it's snowing. And yeah, and you can just go out, I mean, 20 minutes, 20 miles outside Laramie, you'll be in the middle of just vast mountain area and you won't see another soul, right? And it's quiet. And so it was, it was very nice coming from Houston, Texas. It was a radically different environment, but I I really flourish there. I go back there all the time as much as possible. During the pandemic, I went back. So yeah, it's it's a very, I mean, I shouldn't even be, what they tell you in in Wyoming is to say, no, it's terrible. Don't ever go there. You don't want to go. So I'm I'm betraying uh, Wyoming by, you know, gushing about it, but it really is a quite a special little place because it's so sparsely populated. And just a lot of natural, gorgeous areas. Uh, to be honest, I, I'm very envious, and it's I think, been very close to the top of my bucket list for quite some time to do a road trip through Wyoming and Montana. I think I've really romanticised that idea in my head. But you're right; we shouldn't talk about this too publicly, lest uh, it become overpopulated. <laughs> so, moving on, following your narrative, I guess closer to the present day, um, you then chose to apply for graduate studies, where you've ended up at the University of Miami. But in the interim, I gather mm-hmm. that you were doing some work as an adjunct professor um, in Texas. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that something yes. that's the norm in the US to do before applying to graduate studies? Or if not, how did that come about? I'm not sure. I don't think it's the norm. I also am not sure it's the norm to do it while you're pursuing the PhD as well. Or at least some people do work part time. But I, I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to go from the master's to the PhD. I needed I think I needed time to really commit to it, to really feel that I was ready, not just, I think, my writing sample and all that, but you know, emotionally, psychologically. And I come from a working class family and I felt that I needed a job and I needed put it to use. And so I was fortunate to, I gave a talk at the University of Houston downtown where I ended up adjuncting. So I'd made some connections there. And there is a uh, here too as well there's a good population of people who adjunct who are will 
teach part-time at multiple institutions. So that's not so common, I think, with people who are pursuing the PhD, but people who either got a terminal master's or maybe took time off of their PhD or have a PhD but didn't ultimately get a professorship tenure track job, adjunct. And so it is a big thing. And it's different regionally how you're able to do that. But with Houston being a big city like Miami, you can adjunct at multiple institutions. Wyoming, it being, it's really difficult to get a teaching job there. That's maybe the downside of the small population um, and lack of you know schools and colleges is as much as I would love a teaching job there, that's not feasible or realistic um, in the way that Houston and Miami, it's very feasible. So it's always the backup in many ways. Mm-hmm. The backup in many ways, though, I wonder for prospective PhD applicants who are perhaps living in a, in a big city like Houston, Texas, mm-hmm. where are all of the, there are all of these many adjuncting opportunities, as you alluded to, whether there could be mm-hmm. pragmatic reasons to you know, take the initiative and do this before applying to PhD programs, because perhaps it could have some bearing on the success of their applications. How, how do you think that worked in your case? Do you think it's something that strengthened your applications or that it can do so in general? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I think so. I did not realize at the time that it would or that it could or that it it could have been something that I did strategically, not just cowardlessly. Um, But that absolutely. And it was something I ended up being promoted to full-time instructor my second semester because the the students enjoyed my classes. I did what I have high retention rates and all that. And so it was like the full-time job with benefits and the biggest paycheck I'd ever had in my life. And so I actually was like, I don't want to go to grad school (laughs) because I have, this is it. Like I'm good. And uh, my boss actually was like, no, I think you should like, because so many people do end up just adjuncting once you start adjuncting that he was like, no, you still need to, but yeah, absolutely. And particularly giving me the teaching experience and the confidence for teaching that I think, and, and a greater exposure to different populations and student demographics that has been a, a valuable resource for me in teaching at Miami because Miami, um, we teach here as well. So you know, I have other people or peers who had never taught before. And so they were all, you know, not only doing a PhD, but also struggling with teaching first time and learning how to do all that, where I had already had that experience. That was very useful, I think. Well, it's great that you had the opportunity and really good for listeners to know sort of how you went about getting it and what the perks of it were. And obviously right now you're at uh, Miami, a place I'm really fond of. I've got Cuban relatives there. That's really fun for me just to be like, hey, like my, you Miami. At you Miami, you're doing research on the philosophy of humor, which is really interesting because I, I, you know, I wonder, is there anything distinctively philosophical about humor? What sort of things you look at? Oh boy. You know, what isn't philosophical about humor? <laughs> In my dissertation, I attempt to pro- offer, introduce alternative model of humor. Philosophers generally assume humor is a psychological phenomenon. I introduce a non-psychological model of humor as a tool for revealing and reinforcing social norms. And I think that it once we sort of separate humor from its psychological manifestations or embodiments, uh, we can appreciate how it is a method in many ways, like you know, philosophy <laughs> employs. I think of like reductio ad absurdum. You know that uh, logical form could also be understood as like joke, or you know, a joke could perform what is effectively a reductio. 
Same in Aristotle and ancient Greek rhetoric, they talked about enthymemes, which are arguments with implicit premises. So similarly, you can use humor to make an argument without explicitly stating premises. And so part of my dissertation is showing that humor is a tool that enables you to reinforce and reveal norms. And that's particularly effective in context where explicitly stating what or describing what you're doing would undermine your goals. So I also look into instructional teasing. So how you can use teasing as a, as a tool for instruction or education. And so in many ways, I think uh, humor is philosophical in that it's a tool that we use to educate, uh, reveal, and reinforce inconsistency, conceptual inconsistencies or contradictions, but that we do so in a way that is unconventional with, according to traditional like, analytic Anglophone philosophy, which is very much interested and focused on explanation and description and language as a tool for representing reality and, and, or the truth, right? Communicating the truth and what's true and facts about reality. And so um, I think humor, we haven't been able to appreciate the philosophical dimensions of humor in part because we've been constrained by how we approach it altogether, topic altogether. Yeah, no, that, that certainly answers the question. I think there's a, a lot going on there and it'll be great to dive a bit deeper into that. Just briefly before we do, to get maybe a, a bit more of a grip on how your new account of humour um, relates to this pre-existing psychological account of humour. So are these two accounts supposed to be mutually exclusive or can they be both true at the same time? Are they trying to explain humour simply in, in, in different ways, in different contexts? What's the relationship there? Great. Thank you. Yes. So part of what my dissertation is also trying to do is show that we ought to be pluralists about the function of humor. So I show, I draw from work in meta-metaphysics about the status of metaphysical claims and theories to show that we can accept that language or humor performs multiple different functions without defining it as essentially having some certain feature capacity, something of that nature. And secondly, it's not that they're mutually exclusive, but I think the social function of humor can operate independently from the psychological origin story. So one example would be instructional teasing, like I was talking about. So a good example is instructional teasing, where a caretaker might tell a child, if you keep making that face, it'll stick that way. Right? They're not describing a truth. They're saying some. They're using the tease as a tool for reinforcing norms about appropriate behavior. Right? Don't make that face in public. They might do psych, the psychological origin story we tell. It might be because they're frustrated. It might be because they've tried other forms of instruction and it's failed. Right? It might be because that's they come from a family that teases often. Regardless of the psychological origin story we tell, it's still the case that the tease serves the function of reinforcing norms about appropriate behavior. So I want to show that the psychological project is it's good, it's valuable, it's meaningful, it's interesting. However, it's not going to answer or explain all the things that philosophers expect and want it to explain. And so what we need also is this social uh, model that can help illuminate the communicative roles of humor. And so I think it's often doing multiple things at once. Yeah, so my model is hopefully helping to illuminate the other ways in which it functions. So I use the everyday distinction of laughing at and laughing with. 
And so a joke is always kind of simultaneously laughing at someone and laughing with others. So there's the in-group and out-group distinctions or function that it's reinforcing as well. So I look at those dimensions, but not to say the psychological isn't as important, but I think it's been focused on too much and it tends to distort how we think about the social and cultural dimensions of humor. That's so interesting. And with respect to that last point, you were talking about the social and cultural dimensions of humor. Mm-hmm. I mean, one particularly salient case, obviously, is what comedians do, right? So, I mean, comedians, I mean, they often try to like avoid the political and social fallout of saying offensive or risque things, right? And they say, mm-hmm. oh, they're just joking. I'm, I'm curious about whether right. you think that's like a legitimate defense. And if not, are there like certain things about which comedians should not joke? I guess, given it humors role in like important social and even moral norms, as you alluded to earlier. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Part of the consequence of my a- approach is that we already all know that the successfulness of humor does not depend on it being true or accurately reflecting the jokester's belief, right? But we care about holding each other accountable and responsible. So humor is difficult because on one hand, you know, there's no limits to comedy, but on the other hand, it isn't the case that anything goes and people already recognize that. But the difficulty I think is that we sort of our tools and our our vocabularies for holding each other accountable are very much from the rep, this representational tradition where we think it has to do with truth and whether you believe it or whether you endorse it. Very much psychological story, what's your intention, so on and so forth. And so the just joking response, I think, plays on that outdated model where, right, say that I'm getting ready for a job. And so I have short hair that mildly resembles Lord Farquaad from, from Shrek. Right? <laughs> and, um, and so right, you say, I'm getting ready. And you say to me, you know, Oh, are you trying out for, are you heading out to try it for your tryouts for the Lord Farquaad with that haircut? Right. And so at this point now you've reinforced norms about what's appropriate for a haircut, hairstyle, hair length, something like that. And I'm upset. I feel offended. I feel like you are being in some way rude or discriminatory against me. So I say like, you know, why are you doing that? That's not true. Can't you see I'm trying to get ready for an important event or whatever it'd be? And then they say, oh, I'm just joking. So the idea is that when they, I'm trying to challenge the joke. I'm trying to challenge in some way by saying, you know, what you're not entitled to do. It's not legitimate. Look, this is an important thing I'm trying to do. You know, I'm in some way, champ. the function of what I'm doing is to challenge the appropriateness of the joke. And so when the jokester replies, oh, I'm just joking, that signals that the challenge challenger was illegitimate. They're not entitled to challenge. We've already accepted it. No, it's not the case that humor is anything goes. You can still be held accountable. I do think in many ways the just joking response is illegitimate. I think it tries to, it's like, a, I'm working on it. So <laughs> I'm not sure my advisor's totally on board with me calling it gaslighting, but it's not, in a weird way, it functions to dismiss the appropriateness, the legitimacy of challenging the joke. And so part of the implication of my dissertation, my research on the cultural and historical dimensions of humor is that you're actually better off challenging a joke by a joke. So you need to respond in kind because when you try to ask for justification or if you say, well, that's not true, you're actually in a worse off position. Like socially, your social status, it doesn't effectively dismiss uh, whatever sort of implications that the joke has originally put forward. 
right? That you that your hairstyle is ridiculous. If I go, that's not true. Blah, 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 that's mean. And most people aren't going to be aren't going to change their opinion of my, of me or my um, social status won't rise. So the best thing to do is to joke back, to tease back. And this is something I learned from Mark Twain, who famously says laughter is the greatest weapon. And so you would say, you know, go back to the example of the Lord Farquaad haircut. If you say, you know, are you, tr- are you trying out for Lord Farquaad with that haircut? I respond, are you trying out for the evil stepmother with that question? Right. Mm. So that way <laughs> you dismiss it without having to engage in the sort of weird interplay of like, well, that's not true. Why are you doing that? Be nice to me. So it gets a little more difficult in, in the context of stand-up comedy, though. Um, on one hand, I am a sort of, I guess, defender of the heckler. I think the heckler is a very interesting and important role in the performance and the in the sort of institution of stand-up comedy. Not that they're always legitimate either. You can be unwarrantedly heckling, of course. But I do think the heckler plays an important role. And so uh, it's not that I think there should be jokes that are necessarily off limits. I think the social context and even almost the environment in which the stand-up performance takes place matters a lot. Um, so I was thinking of one of Dave Chappelle's last Netflix specials where he's sitting in a chair and he's like on the stage, he's on the chair and it's very much like he's having a conversation with you. And so it emulates just like, he's just talking, but he's reinforcing norms. He's doing, he's not having a conversation because you can't just go, Hey, wait, how was, you know, what did you do last Tuesday? Actually, I don't believe, I don't agree with you because he's not actually talking to any one person. And so I felt that in his last standup, it almost wasn't even a stand-up comedy performance or stand-up routine. It was something like a diatribe or something. And so it's more about, on my view, it's more about the game and the moves that can be made. And I think institutions play an important role in setting out the terms of the game and who gets to play. And so I want to ask questions of, one, what is a joke doing rather than do they agree with it or do they believe doesn't matter on my view. It's more about what is it perpetuating? What norms is it perpetuating? And two, what are the ways in which we can hold them accountable? Are there still ways, you know, methods in which we can hold them accountable, not just canceling on like, you know, Twitter or something like that, but yeah, what are our conditions of like institutional accountability and responsibility as well? So I'm really big on maintaining accountability and responsibility without reducing it to psychology or the truth, or something like that, which I think creates more philosophical problems than it solves. Yeah, so so many issues there that seem so <laughs> worth exploring. I mean, both on the epistemic side of things and also the moral side mm-hmm. of things as well. We don't have long left, and I think for a, a final question, what I really want to ask is we've asked guests uh, about how their work relates to um, different aspects of their lives and society in various different ways. In the philosophy of law, we can think about how does the philosophy of law impact um the, the practice of law? How does political philosophy impact the way that political institutions actually run? And more generally, mm-hmm. how does doing philosophy impact our own lives? But earlier, you said that you work as a clown and you're doing the philosophy of humor. So are there any ways in which your research has like changed the way that you think about your clowning? <laughs> well, I mean, it's helped me embrace the fact that I'm a clown uh, <laughs> because I understand the clown to be like a social role, an important social role it plays in. That's some interesting work in history and the, and the cultural role of the jester and how it's actually cross-cultural, universal phenomenon, basically. 
And so, yes, it's helped me embrace. I've always been awkward and, and just you know, things happen. I drop stuff all the time, stuff that would happen to a clown. And <laughs> although I'm not wearing maybe the clown makeup at the time. And so that's just, I think, psychologically been very helpful for me in not getting stressed out about things. And, you know, and even the weirdness of being a philosopher, you know, we are kind of like clowns in the sense that we have to be outside, you know, everyday institutions and norms and social practices in order to have this sort of outsider perspective on them to write and, you know, write about them and to philosophize about them. Yes, it's it's radically changed how I approach my own life, my own like relationship with life, but also philosophy. I I have a sort of pet project that I really want there to be a philosophy roast. I think philosophers <laughs> need a cultural ritual. We need a ritual, an insult ritual. To go back to our discussion about referee reports, you know, you can people can be really rude and condescending and, and just strangely mean in referee reports. And I find, I think that we need like a healthy outlet for our antagonistic feelings and attitudes. Cause of course it's, you know, it's a difficult job. It's low stakes. It's, you know, it's hard to know exactly you know what the stakes are with a paper or your argument, then it's also the precariousness of the job market and economic financial stability. So we have all these sort of cultural factors that you find in cultures or traditions that have like ritual, insult rituals, ritualistic insult practices, like Alice humor almost. So I think like, yeah, if we had at the APA or something like a roast between people who are friends and actually respect each other, but at the same time allows us to get out those feelings of frustration or whatever it'd be at the same time we're using it to bond with each other because who else is going to understand like the weird things we have to go through and all you know no one else cares about you know the extension of these concepts and all the weird terminology we have to use and so ultimately we can come together and maybe dispel some of those tensions that we find that we express and i think um, unproductive ways otherwise so that's been sort of the big thing for me is coming to see how humor could be almost therapeutic for philosophy, um, how it needs it, I think. No longer a threat to it. Well, I love that. And I mean, uh-uh. yeah, I think that sounds like a fantastic idea to have a comedy roast, uh, but for philosophy. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, on that note, Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.